0: This episode of DRIVE is recorded on the lands of the Araquil people of the Bunjalung nation and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Leila McKinnon and welcome to DRIVE, a podcast about driven women delivering in their chosen fields in partnership with Uber Eats for a second year. In this special episode, I speak to future women's founder and managing director, Helen McCabe, our boss and spiritual leader here at DRIVE. Helen is a former foreign correspondent, a trailblazing media boss, and an old friend, a very private person who I've been wanting to put under the microscope for years. Helen McCabe, welcome to DRIVE.
1: Hi. How are you feeling? I'm a bit uncomfortable, actually. I, I, I don't know how I've agreed to this.
0: I knew you would be. That's why I asked because <laughs> I even, you know, I've known you for 20 years and, you know, I've, it's taken me a long time to, to find
1: out anything. And I, I even Googled <laughs> you and there's not a lot yeah. there. You don't give a lot away. I don't give away anything. And I'm writing a chapter of a book at the moment and I'm driving everyone crazy because they want me to tell stuff. And I just don't do that. I'm a bit confusing because I I think I'm a full-blown introvert actually, but that means I've had to pretend a lot of time to be extroverted just to kind of have a pretty standard media career. As you know, you can't be a full-blown introvert and be in media. As I've started my own business, I've gotten the habit of doing less and less. And here I am, talking to you. And here you are, exactly. Well, okay, this is my big chance. So (laughs) let's go all the
0: way back. I know you come from South Australia and what I'm picturing there of your childhood or your youth is you kind of uh, in a rural place, quite a nice homestead, leaning up against the fence, watching the lambs getting crutched, listening to (laughs) Lee Kernighan and dreaming of a martini (laughs) in the city. (laughs) Where am I on that?
1: Not bad, actually. I grew up only an hour out of Adelaide, but at that time it may as well have been 10 hours out of Adelaide that's just nestled sort of to the side of the Barossa Valley and just before the Clare Valley on the Adelaide Plains and we certainly did a lot of crutching and I did spend a bit of time in the shearing shed and helping out around the farm and I spent a bit of time baking which just no one ever ever copes with or believes and my mother gets quite insulted actually of doing what sorry Uh, because baking because we used to have (sighs) shearers so I we used to have to feed the shearers three times a day they had morning tea lunch and afternoon tea and And it was just mum and I because I had three brothers. I did a lot of those kind of really, really kind of Martha Stewart domestic chores that you might imagine someone that edited Women's Weekly did, but it didn't last very long. I disappeared to boarding school by the time I was 14. But yes, I I did grow up on a farm, very much a working farm. It is still there. My brothers are still there. My parents are still there. It's still the heart and soul of, I guess, my life. But I, as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in Potts Point, which is the most densely populated area of Australia. So I did disappear to martinis and wine bars and Potts Point and never really quite get back to full-time living in country South Australia.
0: I'm very proud I even got it down to the crutching sheave. That's uh, that's (laughs) awesome. Pat (laughs) on the back for me. And you started your media career, were you in television at the beginning?
1: Yes, my um, colleagues have watched me tell this story over the years get quite confused. I did lots of little things. Like I went and did a journalism degree and I was listening to the police scanners overnight at Channel 10. I wrote The Weather at the ABC. I disappeared to Wyala for seven weeks for GDS, BKN. These are all quite common things in South Australia to do as a young journalist. I worked on the gall of bunyip in my holidays, in spare time, but my first full-time job was with Channel 7 Adelaide, um, my most significant job. Oh, I also did a little bit of time in radio. So, I had a pretty patchy start sort of bouncing around and then Channel 7 Adelaide is where I began. I think I was about 21 or 22 when I started on air in Adelaide, which I think there should be a law against. It was just way too young to be on television. Imagine watching a 21-year-old who'd just come out of boarding school and thinking you're going to take her seriously on any issue in South Australia, but that's but that's what happened.
0: It's a good training ground, isn't it? Because I was the same. I was a couple of months out from my 21st and I was in Rockhampton. So yeah, similar background and mm. I, I guess you learn to be, to sort of roll with the punches pretty quickly and work really hard. What do you remember about that time?
1: Well, I've had time to reflect a lot recently, or cause to reflect a lot recently because of what's gone on in Canberra and a lot of chat around how male dominated environments affected our lives and how we responded and what went wrong and where we ever felt threatened, et cetera. So I've been thinking a lot about it. I mean, there was a period of time in in Adelaide television that was pretty difficult. It was a very masculine environment and it was uncomfortable pretty much every day. There was a couple of figures in my early days of reporting, you know, one of them in particular, which I think is, is quite well known in South Australia. I mean, he was a really sinister character as a colleague. And so I did have to navigate that. And there were days where I would be very uncomfortable even being in the same room with him, passing him in a corridor was uncomfortable. So it was pretty good training ground for being very much on your guard, uh, having your wits about you, not being left alone in an editing suite. I think yes, I think I just worked out that you either fitted in or you got out. Every day was was pretty was pretty tough actually, but I quickly disappeared from the Adelaide newsroom and went to Canberra and the Canberra <laughs> Press Gallery. Out of well, the frying pan into the fire. fire. <laughs> Well, actually, it was. It was. It was much better. Um, there, there was a, a very sophisticated environment for reporting. Highly competitive. There were very talented journalists in my midst, um, and an enormous amount was expected of me. And by this stage, I'm still only 23 or something. So, I again think that was a pretty big step for the network to put a 23-year-old into the Canberra Press Gallery and incredibly pressurized for me because I was on the doors trying to remember the names of every backbencher in Australia. And, you know, I I, I really found that. I was not bad on South Australian uh, MPs in Canberra, but, and I have always been fascinated by politics, but that was a next, next level being up at four o'clock in the morning and at the doors by, I'm being a bit that's not quite right. It was probably on the doors by 7am and freezing cold and then trying to chase MPs around to get the morning news grabs.
0: And so what happened to your television career? I can picture you being a big broadcaster now. I'm disappointed that it didn't go that way.
1: I was terrible at it. I think that's the short answer. I have really, really difficult fat hair that I've never been able to blow dry myself. And I didn't really care about it. And I was terrible at putting together an outfit that looked half decent on television. My go-to is anything between black cream and Navy, and television required a rainbow of jackets, which I was rubbish at choosing of my own volition. I also really liked the story and was less interested in the craft of putting together a a news story, and i I was pretty. You know, I was, I had all that usual kind of 20-year-old self-doubt. I don't think I was, had an enormous amount of self-confidence. I was faking a lot of the self-confidence and I didn't like myself on camera and I was just pretty rubbish at it, I think is the bottom line. And my evidence for that, Layla, Mm because I think you're going to argue with me any minute now, my evidence for that is that I got sacked. So, (laughs) I was 26 I mean, I think I was good to an extent in the sense that I loved being in Canberra and loved the stories and loved the environment of Australian politics and policy, but I was pretty rubbish on air. So for all the reasons that I've just described, they used to send down experts to dress me and fix my hair like every six months and then they just <laughs> sacked me. So that was the end of my television career. Okay. There's a
0: few things you've said today that irritate me about the industry and the world. First of all, there were a men that you were nervous to be in a room with. No man ever mm. has to go through that. You mm. know, no man's ever sitting in a room thinking, oh, this person could hurt me at any moment. And also mm. that he has this career that perhaps could have been great for you. And you've got to worry about your hair and your colourful jackets. And and that sort of doesn't yep. happen to the male journalist. No,
1: we it. just accepted that, right? So we all accepted mm. that if we wanted to be on camera, what we look like was a key part of the job. And I find it really exciting watching female leaders of any shape or size. And I'm thinking at the moment of state premiers and health officials that are on camera all day and all night. And I don't think there's any commentary from anyone about what they're wearing anymore. I think that's been a significant shift. One of the other things that struck me about moving out of television, and I've, I've kind of flirted with it from time to time through various things I've done regular commentary on television I even do you know I even hosted a television show for Sky News at one point but the thing that I realized uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this is that television was fine for me both psychologically I got it and I think my television executives got me if I went on television from from a perspective of an expertise. And it didn't matter whether I was a a newspaper person or a editor of a magazine, or I was a commentator on politics. Once I turned up in my own right to talk about something that People thought I had an opinion on or could contribute on. Then I felt much more comfortable and people felt much more comfortable about having me on television. My challenge, which is your challenge, is I had to turn up on television and just be the presenter, just the person who has to kind of look good and look credible, and that bit I was pretty crap at.
0: Right, yes, you've got to own the show, and there's a a part that's sort of entertainment, isn't it, engaging the viewer Let's talk about um, newspapers. You were a foreign correspondent, weren't you, in London?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I um, After I got sacked by the Seven Network and being a workaholic, which was something I promised myself after that experience I wouldn't be, but have failed dismally on that score as well, I moved to newspapers. I, I consciously knew that I needed to move from television, that I wasn't suited. I was just being driven mad by conversations about my hair and makeup. I just couldn't do it. So I moved to newspapers, uh, which was a very happy place for me. I quickly settled in, covered Aboriginal affairs throughout the native title debate, which, you know, I found really rewarding, met some great Indigenous leaders, became friends with people like Tracker Tillmouth, then went to London uh, and and was a correspondent. Never thought in my wildest dreams coming from Hamley Bridge I would be the London correspondent, just relished every minute of bounced around Europe as much as I possibly could, but realised at the end of that period of time quite consciously as attractive as it would have been to follow the route into Fleet Street at that time. I mean, the Murdoch Press was riding high. There were some great newspapers, an amazing newspaper environment that I, you know, was quite seduced by it. But I realised at the time that I couldn't live on the other side of the world. Uh, Australia was home and that limbo that you live in when you're abroad, I couldn't do forever. I I needed to come home. So I came back to Sydney, which wasn't home, but it was a lot closer, and um, took on a job, you know, in the production desk of a newspaper at the Daily Telegraph.
0: Let's bring up a story that we have a mutual friend. I sort of come on the scene here when you're working in Sydney because somebody wrote a story about me when I became engaged to an executive at my company which was very sexist and our mutual friend said to me, oh, Helen was really unhappy about that and she went and gave him a lot of grief and I remember thinking, oh, that's, that's amazing and that's how important it is to have women in positions like that, isn't it? Because otherwise this stuff goes on and the fact that it is slowly changing is because there are women in positions of power like that. Do you remember that?
1: Can I just say to you, I don't remember that. I mean, it's certainly very likely that I went around giving people a hard time about stuff Um, because I think the executive that you married was my boss for a period of time. He knows better than anyone how mouthy I can be when I'm annoyed about something or think there's an injustice in in a newsroom. So it's perfectly logical that I did do that. But the fact that I don't remember it is probably just because there was quite a large number of times when I was jumpy about something or other. But I but think I, it's great.
0: I, it's so I, you that you were fighting for the sisterhood <laughs> back when it was more competitive and probably less supportive in terms of women in the media. There weren't a lot of us and there wasn't this same culture of looking out for each other that there is now, but you were a pioneer of that.
1: Well, thank you. We all have some regrets at stuff that happened that we didn't put our hands up for. And I'm beset by those you know there are all sorts of things that happened in those newsrooms that you just had to let go because if you didn't you wouldn't have survived and I guess and I guess the broader point here is I do some mentoring as part of what I do now and, and future women and this young woman that I was mentoring during the week said She's got a boss, a terrible boss that's micromanaging, taking credit for everything, is highly unlikable and well-known in the organisation to be like that. And I did say to her, I'm just going to say to you what what everyone says to me. If you have got to the top of an organisation in the 90s or the early 2000s and you're a woman and you're, if you think about media companies, then you've gone through an awful lot and you really have had to turn a blind eye to many slights and i think that is a bit of a get out of jail free card for me but it is also a truth if you went into those jobs every day to fight for the sisterhood or to fight for gender equality you just wouldn't have laughed you'd be gone and you'd go crazy so i'm pleased to hear that i occasionally stood up on the equality issue i as i say i I've been pretty opinionated throughout my career on a range of topics, but I'm pleased to hear an example of that. But I'm also going to say there are some things I look back at and think about my attitude towards women and just, you know, I'm just ashamed at what I thought and what I would have said. Yes, it's a different time though. And I think that's some of the
0: things that you look back on public figures who said and did things 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you can't, really hold them accountable to the same standards, can you? Because we mm. all said and did things that wouldn't be acceptable now.
1: It just in the in the context of the current debate around the masculinity and the misogyny in Canberra, there is a lot of hypocrisy uh, on display um, from every which way. I saw an amazing interview with Catherine Murphy from The Guardian about Julia Gillard and that time when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister. And there were a lot of conversations, private conversations with senior female figures about the way Julia Gillard handed herself in office and about the ditch the witch and those protests and the criticism of her. It's pretty accepted now by almost everybody that she was appallingly treated by almost everybody. And Catherine Murphy, for one, said, you know, I look back at my reporting of it and the way I viewed it and I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't stand up. And, I remember thinking at the Times and certainly spoke to other senior reporters, I don't know that it's that much worse than if it was Tony Abbott or or John Howard. It all got called appalling things and terrible cartoons and booed and I still feel a little bit like that but what none of us really did was understand the extent of the gendered misogyny that was directed at her and I share that regret in a way but then equally she was the first and it was a novelty for us as women watching a woman succeed to the top as much as it was for everybody else.
0: I remember one of the things that people did in broadcasting was call her Julia instead of prime minister. And I yes. remember being incredibly irritated at the time, yes. at the lack of respect.
1: I, I totally agree. I mean, oh, by the way, I'm still annoyed when I hear Scott too, yeah. or Scotty for marketing. Like I know that's just a line, but you know, I, I'm a little bit old school about the office and Mm. treating people in the office with respect regardless of you know what you might think of them or what they've just done. So
0: at the newspapers did there come a time where you hit a glass ceiling do you think or did you just need to change to something else?
1: I think yes. I think I did hit the glass ceiling in terms of editing in Sydney. So I was a deputy editor of a Sunday paper and that was a pretty standard route for women in newspapers at News Corp to go. So you weren't ever really likely to edit the Daily Telegraph but you could edit the Sunday Telegraph and so being deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph was a good next step to that. I was in a situation where I had a very powerful and leading Sunday editor who was a man and I just couldn't see and similarly across the way I knew I would never edit the Daily Telegraph. I also, more than that, I knew I didn't want to. I knew you probably should be a man to edit that paper, to navigate The politics internally and externally, being a powerful male figure, uh, would have made that job a very difficult job, much easier than being a woman. And so when the job at Women's Weekly came up, I was not overly drawn to it because of my passion for general news, and I was pretty much a hard news reporter. I didn't really see myself in the women's media space. I had to give it a lot of thought, but in the end, concluded. If I wanted to stay and be promoted in newspapers, I'd have to go into state. I thought probably if I asked for it, they might consider giving me the Adelaide advertiser because it was hometown for me. But I was not ready to go back to Adelaide at that point. And so, yes, I felt I did hit a ceiling. I'm going to say though, since I edited the weekly, I have had opportunities to edit newspapers in one way or another in Sydney. And you know, when I went off to go to the weekly. It was partly to stay in Sydney but I guess partly to prove to myself that I could do it and having done that, I, I kind of let that ambition go because it's a stupid thing to want to do, edit a newspaper in this town. Like that's just one way to completely torture your life and your sanity. So I was very happy to let that go.
0: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner Uber Eats. Uber Eats is proud to support Feed Appeal who are dedicated to improving the lives of people experiencing hunger or food insecurity. The work of Feed Appeal and their partner charities has always been crucial in providing meals for struggling Australians. But since COVID-19, there has been a sharp increase in food relief requests, with many Aussies reaching out to ask for help for the first time in their lives. Throughout the pandemic, Feed Appeal have worked incredibly hard to maintain their vital services and innovate new ways to help those in need. And as part of the ongoing partnership between Uber Eats and Feed Appeal, more than 760,000 meals have been delivered to vulnerable households. If you're looking for help or know someone in your community who is, please reach out to one of Feed Appeal's partner charities in your state at feedappeal.org.au. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Helen McCabe. So Future Women, how did that all come about and how did you navigate the pandemic flopping on your doorstep just as things were getting going?
1: I believed after editing Women's Weekly that there was an opportunity for a brand that walked the tightrope between being progressive for women and representing their views, but also offering independent public interest journalism delivered, you know, free of a connection to advertisers and sponsorships. So, that's a long way around saying, I thought women would pay for a digital product that was independent, ultimately, eventually. I also thought there was a requirement for an ability to meet one another online, whether it be on a website or through Facebook groups and be brought together by a brand like FW or Future Women. So I managed to pull together a business plan and with the assistance of many people and the support of nine we launched in 2018 in a joint venture. Uh, It was a plan that was coming together for anyone who's starting businesses and worried about how quickly you can do these things. I started thinking about it in 2015. I was into planning by 2016 and I launched uh, 2018 after the first wave of Me Too, the Weinstein stories were all just rolling out around the world and I'm still sitting in the planning stage and missed it, like in many ways, missed the first wave. So, I was thinking, wow, am I just too late to this party? And then got it up and running, had the usual fear around, is this model working? Have we got the pricing structure right? Will anybody ever pay? Lots of support, lots of negative thoughts, you know, were flowing through as well. And then the pandemic, there was, I guess, about a a week where we had to really look at what we were spending on and how we were going to reposition the brand. And I just had this overwhelming sense of, well, I can only do my best. Like I've given this a shot. If it fails now, it'll be through no fault of my own. I'm just going to bunker down. And we just, I'm going to just do a shout-out to Jamila Rizvi here who. In when we launched FW, had gone through quite a difficult period herself with multiple surgeries or at least two surgeries and multiple doctor's appointments and being unwell for vast amounts of time and she then sort of just came through all of that and by the beginning of last year was raring to go on, the, on FW and just sort of took the reins in one of those early weeks and said, we're just going to go full digital And we reverted to what we knew best, which was journalism, and just started covering the story. And because of our history of journalism and the size of a contact book, just interviewed everyone from Malcolm Turnbull to Karen Phelps to Kerry Chant to Gladys Vera-Chicklin and just went with the news story. And And in a way, I guess,
0: having people at home looking for community and looking for news and turning to the computer, it worked for you in the end.
1: Yes, and that career in television that I was rubbish at, (laughs) came back to Have be you had quite to blow youthful? dry your
0: hair every morning the fat hair I, didn't,
1: I just didn't worry you know i didn't care i just dealt with my hair and every day we were doing like a hour long interviews and unpacking the news And one of those there's a fun moment when one of our members was a girl who was writing for Mumbrella and she wrote this beautiful piece in Mumbrella saying organizations like Future Women have really come to the fore in the pandemic because they've just been a lifeline. We've been able to meet the owners and the team, and we've been able to tune in every day and find out what's going on and ask questions. And it was a very exciting time to watch the brand kind of crystallize going from what are we, what exactly does the audience want and what gap precisely are we filling? To, all right, this is what we're feeling, this is the gap. There's no doubt it was the making of FW. We've come through in an amazing way as a team and as a brand and with a lot of clarity around who we are and what role we feel in this country.
0: What I'm thinking about now is what people can take away from this, assets that worked for you. And what strikes me is you really back yourself and think about what you want to achieve. You don't sort of dance to other people's tune or for too long anyway. You know, what would you give yourself credit for?
1: I think there's nothing like starting your own business to highlight your strengths and your weaknesses. So every day, what I'm crap at is really clear to me in a way that I wasn't sure of before. And equally, I'm really clear at what I'm good at. I think the thing that I'm good at doing is solving problems. Is that a calmness or a... I think I'm pretty calm, yes. I give the credit to my colleagues in newspapers for that because when you're working on a newspaper deadline, it's just chaos every night. And the only person I ever admired in that was the calm person. So I worked out rather than throwing the tantrum, which plenty of people do on newspapers, um, I might just be the calm person. So I'm calm and I'm good at solving problems. And the other thing I'm good at is hiring people. So I hire people that are better than me. I hire good people and then I get out of their way. But backing myself, I, I guess so. Well, you wouldn't wouldn't
0: jump out of the world of Australian media, which is really difficult anyway, to start your own business if you didn't back yourself into it.
1: Look, I think what happened was I was watching bigger and more successful female media entrepreneurs than myself, like Mia Friedman, Sarah Wilson, do it like a decade earlier and have then the autonomy of running their own lives. The freedom from that was what I really craved. I really didn't want to work for anyone else. I wanted some freedom as I got into my 50s. So that was a really strong motivator and I also felt I could see a gap. I mean there were moments, Layla. there was a moment where I just went, what if this fails? Like this could fail. Most people at the moment are telling me it will fail People are regularly telling me they don't get it or why am I doing it and doesn't make any sense and why would anyone pay for it? And I had to actually go deep into the thought process, okay, it's failing. You've, you've spent the money. You've got to apologize to people that have invested in it. What does that look and feel like? And that doesn't look or feel great at all. But once I got over that hurdle of what does failure really look like, and could I live through it? Could I make those calls? Could I have that press release come out? Could I read in the press? It was never going to work. It was a half-cocked idea. What would people think about me? Well, the people that thought it was stupid would just pat themselves on the back. But the people that care about you, they don't care. They couldn't give a staff whether your business failed. They're not even interested in my business. <laughs> they, don't, they don't even know what I do. That was the turning point. That
0: gives you a kind of a fearlessness, doesn't it? Because you've faced the worst and you've yep. gone on anyway.
1: Yeah. I think that's right.
0: Let's just end on what would you say to Scon baking, Helen, dreaming of the city and a big career? What would be your number one piece of advice?
1: My number one piece of advice is to always be curious and to read widely. And I think if you've got a curious mind and you're well-read, the prospects of life open up before you. The potential of life opens up before you. You don't have to be broadcasting over a bushfire or in a flat jacket in Afghanistan to have a life that is exhilarating and adrenaline-inducing. It can be whatever you want it to be. But the potential is enormous. I never in my wildest dreams imagined I would do what I did. And in many ways, my life hasn't really got out of Australian media particularly, but it is far beyond what I ever imagined. And I think one of the reasons for that is I just kept consuming other people's stories and watching how other people did it. And eventually I could see a path into doing things that I never thought were imaginable before.
0: Helen, thank you. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Drive is a Future Women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats. Make sure you've subscribed so you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could leave a rating and review as it really helps us reach more people. See you next Wednesday.